What's stopping you from becoming a Catholic? Why can't women become priests? Why do Catholics worship Mary? Why do I need to confess my sins to a priest? Where is purgatory in the Bible? I think the Pope has too much authority. What's stopping you? You are called to communion with Dr. David Anders on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Hey everybody, welcome again to Call to Communion here on EWTN. This program is just for you if you are a non-Catholic, or perhaps you've uh, been away from the Catholic Church for a while. In any event, here's our phone number, 833-288-EWTN. If you have a question about the Catholic faith, 833-288-3986. If you're listening to us or watching us outside of North America, please dial the number 1 and then 205 271 2985. And if you're watching us on television today, here is your opportunity to participate as well. The address for our email is ctc at ewtn.com. If you're watching on TV, that's the best way to communicate with the show, ctc at ewtn.com. Charles Beery is our producer, Matt Gabinski, our phone screener. Jeff Burson is on social media. If you want to ask a question via YouTube or Facebook, we're streaming there right now. All you have to do is put your question in the comments box. Jeff will see that. He'll shoot it to us here in the studio, and we will take it from there. I'm Tom Price, along with Dr. David Anders. Tom, how are you? Doing, doing very well. How are you? I'm all right. Thank you. Are you sure you're all right? I'm all right. Okay. Glad to hear it. Going to get to an, an objection here from Carol, who says, What is your opinion of the beginning of anti-Semitism? I heard a Catholic high school teacher interpreting passages in Matthew's Gospel as how it began. He sounded like Jesus was a cause. What is your opinion? That's from yeah, thanks. Carol. So it's really important to distinguish between anti-Semitism and anti-Judaism. Okay. All right, because anti-Semitism is prejudice against people because of their ethnicity, and anti-Judaism would be prejudice against a form of religious practice. So um, the, the biblical perspective, well, let me put it this way, the New Testament perspective is that Jesus fulfills Old Testament prophecy, right? Okay. And that Jesus is the Messiah of the Jews and of the whole world. Mm -hmm. And as such... Uh, the Judaism of Jesus's day, or I should say the Judaisms of Jesus's day, which largely did not concur with that judgment, right? And of course, what would eventually develop into rabbinic Judaism also rejected the claim that Jesus was the Messiah, or that he was the fulfillment of biblical prophecy. It was inevitable that early Christianity and early rabbinic Judaism would take different paths and, and look askance at one another, because one side said he is the Messiah, and one side said he definitively is not the Messiah. Mm. And, uh, and uh, what, as Christianity developed uh, in the New Testament, it clearly taught that Gentile converts to Judaism do not need to follow the law of Moses. So it profoundly relativized the significance of the law of Moses, the whole Mosaic Code. And uh, even though early Jewish Christians continued to practice uh, Judaism and go to the temple and circumcise their children and that sort of thing, uh, the, the, you know, the... The end was near for for Jewish practice within within Christianity. So it was, it was almost inevitable that they would that they would uh, uh, come to be in some uh, degree of antagonism. And there's no doubt that as you as Judaism was a live option for uh, converts to the God of Israel, that a polemical tone took hold in 
shall we say, well, dialogue would be the wrong word, but inter-Christian Jewish discussion. Okay. Right? It, was, it, was, it was polemical, and it was edgy, and it was they were definitely not looking to make common calls. They mm. were kind of at each other's throats, and the Talmud has nasty things to say about Jesus, and early Christians had nasty things to say about Jewish practice. So that's a fact. That's a fact of history. And, uh, and in the Middle Ages, it, it resulted in uh, really unjust treatment of Jews living in majority Christian countries in the West, right? With full complicity from the church, I'm ashamed to say, but that is the fact of the matter. Um, it wasn't until uh, modernity that what had become sort of a centuries of Christian prejudice against Jewish practice— and obviously the Jewish communities and the people that, that occupied them, would, would morph into full-blown anti-Semitism and theories of racial superiority such as we associate with modern Nazism. So can you, can you draw a line of influence from early anti-Judaism to what would later develop as anti-Semitism? I think undeniably you can, right? Um, but, uh, but you don't find anti-Semitism in the New Testament of the Fathers. There's no theory of racial superiority. It's, a, it's, a, it's restricted to questions of religious practice and theology. Very good. Tara, Carol, thanks so much uh, for your question. Here's an email from Justin. I have heard that God is everywhere, but the presence of God is not everywhere. How can this be? A priest once told us that in his homily. Um, yeah, so this priest, I think, is operating with a very idiosyncratic understanding of what he means by presence. Mm. Okay. So let me give you a, a better reference. Uh, a Dominican priest by the name of Anselm Moynihan has a wonderful little book, short little book, called The Presence of God, where he lays out the different modes of the divine presence. Hmm. And uh, one mode that he discusses, discusses is God's omniscience, that God knows everything about everyone and everywhere at all times. Another one is what he calls... Uh, what scholastic theology calls divine immensity. And what that means is that the being of God, the nature of God, the essence of God, mm-hmm. which is the act of being, right? Uh, Dionysius the Areopagite put it this way. He said God is the being that beings have, right? So, or St. Paul says, in him we live and move and have our being, right? We, God is not an object in the world over and against the material world. God is the the precondition, the 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 ultimate uh, metaphysical bedrock for the existence of all things. And as such, the very act of being, God himself, is present Mm. to every particle of creation, and in such a fashion that there is not more of God in an elephant than in a mouse. All of God is present to each uh, distinct particle of creation. So wherever you are, all of God is present to you by way of his immensity. But then there's the presence of God dwelling in the soul by way of sanctifying grace. And that is not everywhere. That is restricted to the souls of the just. Okay. And then there is a very special mode of presence, which is the mode of God's presence, hypostatically united to the humanity of Christ, transubstantiated into the Blessed Sacrament which is very much locally conscripted within the consecrated host and chalice and what's kept in the tabernacle, and that's not everywhere. Okay. Justin, thanks so much uh, for your question. In a moment, we'll get to the phones here and talk with Banks in San Angelo, Texas. Lines are open for you at 833-288-EWTN. 
It's called a communion here on EWTN with Dr. David Anders. If you're ready now, let's go to the phones at 833-288-EWTN. We begin with Banks in San Angelo, Texas, listening on the great Guadalupe radio. Hey there, Banks. What's on your mind today, sir? Howdy, fellas. Howdy. Uh, I love you guys. Uh, I love your show and uh, what you present. Uh, peace be with you. This call screener said I, I could tell my uh, two short questions. Okay. But he did explain, Matt explained the uh, first one, which is what Dr. David does is give apologetics. Uh, what is there to uh, apologize for? Yeah, and thanks. The second, well, I can, go ahead, go ahead, sorry. Okay, the second question short. Uh, you see in paintings uh, of Jesus, and he's got he's making uh, this blessing with two fingers up and a thumb outwards, it's like a Boy Scout almost. Uh, is that just made up from some painters, or does that mean something? Yeah, thanks. I really appreciate appreciate the question, both of them. So with respect to apologetics, apologetics uh, comes from a Greek word that means to make a defense. And it's a discipline, it's a branch of theology, and it seeks to offer an intellectual, rational defense of the Christian faith. So it, it doesn't mean saying, I'm sorry. It, it means saying, here's why I believe the Christian faith is an intelligible, rational position to hold, and to answer objections to to the Christian faith. That's, okay. that's the discipline of apologetics. Um, in terms of the hand gestures, so there is a, a branch of religious artwork called iconography, and it's much more important to the Christian East, to the Greek and Russian world, than it is in the Latin Church. It was very important in, uh, in the Eastern part of the Catholic world. And there are, it's highly stylized, so the, the forms and the shapes of iconography do have symbolic significance in that context. And there are actually a number of different hand gestures that are traditionally used uh, mm. with reference to Christ to, to display blessing or announcement, teaching, other things. Uh, but one very characteristic one is actually deliberately shaped into the shape of Greek letters that stand for the name Jesus Christ. Really? Yeah. So uh, I'm not an expert on iconography, so I can't go through all the different gestures and tell you all mm. of their significance. But but they do have significance, and it's and it's it's not based on any kind of uh, eyewitness experience or testimony of Jesus. Mm -hmm. We don't know what Jesus did with his hands. I mean, you know, if he was like my mother, he probably moved them a thousand miles an hour <laughs> while I was talking. You know, or he could have sat on them like my father. I don't know. You know, <laughs> um, but it's a it is a it's a convention of Christian artwork, in particular the form known as iconography. Banks, thanks so much for your call. Appreciate that. That opens up a line for you right now at 833-288-EWTN. If you have a question for Dr. David Anders, or perhaps you'd like to explain uh, what is stopping you from becoming a Catholic, 833-288-3986. Here's a question now from Jim uh, via email. Please explain why the list of seven spiritual gifts in paragraph 1831 of the Catechism, why is that different than St. Paul's lists in 1 Corinthians 12 and Romans 12? Yeah, thanks, because it's based on uh, Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1 to 3, and not based on Paul's enumeration of spiritual gifts in 1 ah, Corinthians. So okay. when, uh, when Isaiah speaks about 
uh, the Messiah, he says, the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit mm-hmm. of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge, and the fear of the Lord, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. So this is a description of the Messiah's character, right? And as participants in Christ, we share in that particular charism. So our, our share in the Holy Spirit, a whole, apart from the question of, say, uh, uh, special charisms like speaking in tongues or prophecy or healing, mm-hmm. there is a share in this, uh, what are called the, the gifts of the Spirit, wisdom, understanding, um, counsel, knowledge, fortitude, piety, and fear of the Lord. Okay. And they, uh, they, are, they are adjoined to, they are adjuncts to uh, the virtues, so they, they work together with uh, justice and temperance and prudence and uh, faith, hope, and charity and the, and the rest of them. All right, very good. And uh, Jim, thanks so much uh, for your email. Back to the phones now at 833-288-EWTN. Pat is listening in Murrieta, California uh, on uh, EWTN television, actually. Pat, what's on your mind today? Uh, what's on my mind is that um, after hearing so many times for so long now, uh, with thoughts and I guess feelings of our Pope, Pope Francis, uh, it, it's come to me that when I go to church, I almost, um, I don't know how to put it other than my principles, um, they don't, they just don't align with anything, and as going to church as a Catholic, uh, I'm supposed to recognize, and I hate to say it, but respect the main head of our church, our Pope, and somehow I don't do that anymore. Oh, oh. yeah, thanks, Pat. I, I really appreciate the question. Um, I really do, uh, and and I've got a lot to say about this. Let me try to d- dive in. So, first of all, I think that Pope Francis would be the first person to say that being a Catholic does not require you to appreciate the personality, ideology, or policy positions of any pontiff, bishop, or priest. I think Francis would be the first person to say that. And if you look through Catholic history, there have been popes that have been saints. There have been popes that have been horrific, scandalous sinners. We had a 200-year history in the late Middle Ages without a single pope being canonized. And there were some, there were some humdingers. There were some <laughs> cowboys in the Vatican. I can tell you, mm. right? That did some crazy stuff. Uh, there have been popes that have been tremendously wise. There have been popes that have been foolish, including the very first pope, Peter, who did some very foolish things. And Catholic identity, Catholic faith, Catholic practice, does not require anybody to respect. The, you know, the particular personality as such of the Pope, it requires that you respect the office, does not require that you respect, the, the, that you form a judgment of good character or judgment about some particular personality. Okay. Right? Um, now, that being said, that being said, uh, Francis, in my opinion, is, uh, he's a controversial character to be sure, and I believe, this is my personal opinion, that there are ideologues, people that have a very strong ideological bias, whose interests are served by being inflammatory. And there are voices, and I know who they are, and you may know some of them, who go out of their way 
to depict Pope Francis's declarations in the most divisive, ideologically controversial way possible. And what the Church does say we should do with the reigning pontiff and the bishops is that we owe them what's called the religious submission of mind and will. What does that mean? All right, it means that I ought to try to give a good faith hearing to what the pastors of the church are saying and construe them in the most benevolent and constructive light possible. Now, it could happen that in doing that, I come to the conclusion that, say, my parish priest is completely out in left field and, and teaching absolute nonsense. And if that's the case, then conscience compels me to not listen to what that parish priest has to say, mm-hmm. okay, or that bishop or that pope or whoever it is. But first, I do, I should make the effort to get to offer a good faith hearing, okay. I will tell you how I read Pope Francis's pastoral priorities, and look, you can disagree with me. That's part of what I'm trying to communicate. You you don't have to share my opinion. You don't even have to share the Pope's opinion, right? But I'd like to I'd like you to give him a fair shake, okay? Um, when I uh, my wife used to be involved in a ministry at nursing homes, and she would go find Catholics uh, in nursing homes who hadn't had the sacraments in years because they were forgotten. Mm-hmm. Now that's what Pope Francis calls people on the margins. It's a big thing for Pope Francis. People on the margins. Here are people who haven't had the sacraments in years. And she would get the permission of the pastor of the parish, the geographical parish, to do this. Mm-hmm. And she would go in, and she would find these people and say, would you like to receive the sacraments? And very often they would say, absolutely, you betcha I would. Then she would go find a priest and say, would you come hear this woman's confession? She's 90 years old. She hadn't been to confession in six years and, or 20 years or whatever. And she's, you know, she'd really like to go. Invariably, the priest would say, well, you know, I've got other things to do, and i got to say Mass, and i got to do this, and i got to do that. And she'd say, Father, this woman is 90 years old. Please come. He'd go, oh, okay, okay, okay. And he would, she'd drag the priest there, and mm. they'd hear the confessions. And, and invariably, the priest afterwards would thank you very much. This was worth my time. I'm glad I did this. I wouldn't have done it if you hadn't gone out there and met these people and, and, and put two and two together. Mm-hmm. In more than one nursing home, after she started this fantastic ministry— Lay people would, not priests, lay people would come to her and say, you can't do this, it's not your job. You're not allowed in here. This is my job. Mm. This is my territory. You're muscling in on my territory. And my wife is not a controversial person. She didn't like to make a fuss, so she would move on to the next nursing home. Now, why do I tell the story? There was a structure. There was a bureaucracy in place in the local parish. Uh Uh-huh that impeded missionary apostolate, that stopped people from going to the margins to receive those who were in need of the sacraments and in need of grace. Now multiply that times a billion people in all the institutions of Catholic life. And the way I read Pope Francis, he is very concerned with bureaucratic structures in the church that impede apostolate and stop people going to the margins, as I have experienced. I just told you one anecdote, right? Mm-hmm. And he has said, we, we have to be more concerned about missionary outreach and evangelism and reaching the margins than we do about maintaining whatever structures we have in place that we think are so sacrosanct that really aren't. 
And if you've ever read Pope Francis's apostolic exhortation on evangelism, it's all about this question. Now, what happens when you start breaking down people's structures and ideological commitments and institutions to which they are committed is some people say, hey, he's tearing down things that I hold dear. But you got to remember, in my judgment, my opinion, you can disagree with me, that a lot of what he's taken aim at that has got people upset are structures that he has correctly identified are impeding apostolate and stopping the gospel from going to folks on the margins. All right, now, um, there's no doubt in my mind that Pope Francis himself has an ideological tilt, right? And he, he finds the structures that he would like to mess with more on, say, one side of the ideological aisle than the other. Mm. And that, that really gets people riled up. And they say, well, let's, let's, if you're going to tear down structures, let's, let's be even-handed and tear down all the ones that need to be torn down and not just my favorite one, <laughs> right? And again, that's why popes are human beings. They have limited scope of vision. Um, but it doesn't mean, even if you disagree with them, that you can't learn something from them. And I myself have been wonderfully positively challenged by the Pope when I've given him a hearing and I've taken off my own ideological blinders or tried to and said, what, what is he really saying that the church needs to hear? And since I work in the Catholic Church and I work in the bureaucracy and I, I read these things that he says about the bureaucratic structures in the church and I see them all the time. I've, I couldn't tell you stories I've heard, stories I've witnessed firsthand. Of, uh, of people literally standing in the way of those that want to come into the church because, well, you know, you, you didn't sign up on the Wednesday night roster, uh, <laughs> you know, or whatever it is. Yeah. I mean, I see it all the time. And I'm so grateful for a pope that says, you know what, we, we've got to get out of our own way and get the gospel out to as many people as possible. That's, that's how I read the pope. Others disagree with me. But whether you do or not, it's not required to agree with everything the pope says to be a faithful Catholic. Pat, we hope that's helpful for you. Thanks for checking in from California. Call to communion here on EWTN. Our phone number, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Ed sent us an email. He says, I'm trying to learn more about sacred tradition. Is it all compiled in one place somewhere? Or do I read the Church Fathers to learn about the subject, or somewhere else perhaps? Yeah, sacred tradition broadly is everything that the Church has done to hand on the deposit of faith. Wow. So you shouldn't think of tradition as like just restricted to specific propositional truths recorded in a text. Right? Mm. Yeah, that's part of it. So the, the writings of the Fathers definitely count as part of the patrimony of Catholic tradition. Mm -hmm. but, but so does liturgical practice, for example. Uh, so do spiritual practices. So do traditions of religious life. L literally, the way the Church lives, breathes, eats, sleeps, preaches, prays, celebrates, all, uh, all is part of Catholic tradition broadly conceived. Right? Now, there's a more narrow construal of tradition, which would be, say, those things that the Church authoritatively teaches. Mm -hmm. Even more narrow, those things that the Church declares to have been revealed by God. And that you can find in a source like Denzinger's Inchiridion, which is kind of a digest of all mm -hmm. the papal pronouncements and the conciliar pronouncements on the dogmas of the faith. But there's a broader sense in which, you know, say, for example, the Benedictine rule, right? I mean, that's it's not a dogma. Right. right? It's, a, it's, a, it's a set of practices adopted yeah. by a particular religious community. Mm -hmm. But the Benedictine rule is part of Catholic traditions. It's a way of handing on the patrimony of the lived Catholic experience. All of that goes into it. So you want to read the Fathers? 
read the heck out of the fathers and the doctors and the popes and scripture and commentators and theologians and lay people and spiritual writers and saints and all of it. Ed, thanks so much uh, for your email. We have lines open for you right now. If you have a question for Dr. David Anders, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. For Call to Communion, do stay with us. It's Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders. Our phone number, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833 833- 288-3986. If you're watching us on TV today, please send us an email. The address for that, ctc at ewtn.com. Hey, our friends in Michigan need to hear from you this week. Ave Maria Radio in Michigan is airing their fall membership drive all this week. So if you're listening in Ann Arbor or Detroit or Saginaw or Bay City or anywhere, please support your EWTN Catholic radio station. Well, we're going to go kind of deep into this one. This is an email from Rebecca, and she says, Robert P. Jones stated that white supremacy is based on a fundamental lie instituted by a Catholic pope in the 15th century. That pope was supposed to have, quote, made a doctrine that when white explorers found people of color, that unless they converted to Christianity, they should be enslaved or killed. This uh, Mr. Jones said, this is new evidence in the doctrine of discovery. I'd appreciate your comments on the historical aspect as it relates to the church. That's from Rebecca. Do you know who Robert P. Jones is? Don't know Robert P. Jones, but I can comment on his allegations. Okay. So, uh, first of all, when when uh, Europeans discovered the New World, popes, of course, were very interested in the question. And in uh, the 15th century, Eugene IV taught explicitly that European explorers could not enslave native peoples wherever they found them, whether they were Christians or not. Okay. And in the 16th century, Pope Paul VI, Pope Paul VI, Pope Paul III, uh, confirmed that teaching, that it is Ill- illegitimate to enslave uh, natives just because they're not Christian people. So the European explorers who were Catholics went to the New World and then promptly went about enslaving native peoples because that's what Catholics do when the Pope tells them emphatically, don't do something. They say, thank you for your opinion, Mr. Pope, and then they do what they want to wow. some of the time, right? And we okay. see that today when the Pope says, hey, you know what? Absolutely, you cannot abort children. Do not do it. It's off limits. Kids are sacrosanct, they're sacred, they're human beings from the, fir- from the time of conception. And if you look at the data, a lot of Catholics say, thank you, Pope, for your opinion, we're going to do what we want to. So c- Catholics disobeying the Pope is not a new thing, right? Yeah. For that matter, Jesus, Moses said, don't commit adultery. And, um, well, we know the history of that in the oh, Catholic yeah, Church, right? Yeah. So it's one thing to have a moral principle, it's another thing to live by it. Mm-hmm. But the Church uh, has never taken the position that one race was intrinsically superior to another and with the justified uh, enslavement based on uh, racial or, uh, or religious categories. Now, that is not to say that some individual Catholic uh, may have held that as his private theological opinion. Right, and in fact, that that's highly likely. I mean, individual Catholics can believe and do all kinds of crazy stuff, and they can, mm. like you know, they can. Well, they can even eat certain kinds of fast food and call it good, right? You know, I mean, they can do all kinds of nonsense, right? Sure. Um, so you may find Catholics in history that have said such things, but that's not the Church's position as such, right? And interestingly, some of the popes early on were themselves slaves, right? They were slaves themselves. Uh, and uh, they were some of them were non-white, okay. And some of the doctors of the church and f- uh, fathers of the church were non-white. I mean, one of my favorites, of course, is Moses the Black, 
yeah. uh, who was a great uh, desert father, influenced uh, John Cashin and the institutes that went on to um, inform a Benedictine spirituality that was so important throughout the history of the world. Um, you know, Augustine of Hippo was a North African, and if he wasn't a sub-Saharan African, he was clearly swarthy in appearance. And mm-hmm. I mean, you could kind of go down the list. I mean, there's all, all kinds of characters from Catholic history that that uh, fill the ranks of sainthood and and the papacy and others that were from you know not white Europeans. Jesus Christ himself, not a not a white you know uh, Northern European. Uh, in terms of understanding the roots of white supremacy, uh, you know. If you have done a little bit of study of the history of culture worldwide, you know that just about every culture on the planet ha- has at one time or another decided that theirs was the dominant culture that everybody else should imitate. And, um, you know, that's true. That's true of white people. Um, that's true of, that uh, uh, was certainly true of the ancient Greeks. It was ch- true of the ancient Chinese. It's true of, um, of, uh, uh, Arabic Islamic expansionism. It's mm-hmm. true of certain castes within Indian society. I remember I was having a conversation one time with a uh, a Nigerian archbishop uh, who I was fortunate he visited Birmingham, my own diocese, and was staying with my bishop. I got invited to go spend some time with him, and so I was talking to him about his pastoral priorities in in um, in Western Africa. And I said, "What are your pastoral priorities?" And he said, "Well, I'm my number one pastoral priority is uh, is to combat racism." said, well, what are you talking about? He said, well, in my particular diocese, we have uh, a great deal of, uh, of racism based on ethnicity, mm. you know, between people that most Americans would recognize as belonging to a homogenous ethnic group, right? They were all sub-Saharan black Africans. But okay. in their own community, there were some pretty distinct racial and ethnic differences recognized mm. that formed the basis of a fairly strict caste system. And he said that contradicts our Catholic teaching about the dignity of the human person and, and that there's no uh, slave or free or Jew or Greek or male nor female in Christ. And so I'm mm-hmm. really working to break down uh, racism within my community. Uh, you know, I've, it's, it's, it is ethnocentrism is really kind of endemic to human experience. Tribalism is built into the fabric of our social psychology. Um, I re- there's a wonderful book by Jonathan Haidt. He's not a Catholic, but he's an interesting social psychologist called The Righteous Mind about the social psychology of um, religious and political pr- uh, prejudice. And in that book, he cites a study, it's an interesting case study, of, um, you know, when you're in grammar school and you play tag team football. Back yes. in my day, half the kids would be told, okay, you guys take off your shirts and you're the skins, and the other half keep your shirts on, you're the shirts, and yep. the sh- shirts versus skins. And uh-huh. you break the teams down utterly randomly. A, B, A, B, A, B, A, B. There's no rhyme or reason to it. And when you do that, when you take kids and you divide them utterly randomly with no principle to the division at all and mm-hmm. set them against one another in some kind of athletic performance, social psychologists tell us that uh, th- that they will start to think that their team is morally superior to the other team. Mm. And the other guys are bad guys, just in virtue of being the other guys. That That's unfortunately endemic. It's part of the curse of the fall, I suppose. It's part of the wounds of original sin. Yeah. Um, that, uh, that, that tribalism and ethnocentrism is so deeply ingrained in human psychology, and it takes grace. Uh, and honestly, the Christian doctrine of the dignity of the person to overcome that. Rebecca, thank you so much uh, for your email. Glad we could tackle it today here on EWTN's Call to Communion with Dr. David Andrews. We do have several lines open at the moment, 
888-288-EWTN. If you call right now, we can hopefully get you on today's program. 833-288-3986. Mike is in Detroit uh, listening to the aforementioned Ave Maria radio. Mike, what's on your mind today, sir? Oh, hey, thank you. Thanks for taking my call. Sure. Um, so I was doing a Bible study with my best friend, Leigh, and we came across a verse that talked about Jesus' brothers and sisters. I've listened to the show before, and I understand um, that the original Greek word used referred to his cousins, which would fit in with early church tradition that Mary had no other children. My question is this. Why wasn't it translated to state cousins? Why yeah, thanks. So the Greek word doesn't say cousins. The Greek word says brothers and sisters. Ah. Right? It doesn't say cousins. It says brothers and sisters. Um, and the question is not what does the Greek say. It's what does the Greek mean? And is it necessary whenever you find the term brother in Scripture to in, to understand that that refers to you know first degree biological sibling? And the answer to that question is no. Any more than it does today in colloquial English. I mean, I have a I have a buddy who uh, every time he, I mean we're not biologically related at all, but whenever I talk to him, it's always hey brother David, how you doing? You know, and uh, he does that to everybody. Everybody's brother this and brother that, yeah. brother so and so. And in antiquity, it was not uncommon to refer to your kinsmen, and and those you know family groups could be construed quite quite widely as brethren. We, we still sort of do that in English today. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it's in terms of the specific identity of the characters involved in, say, Matthew chapter 13, uh, if you read the, the Gospels in parallel, you can find out who they are. They are the children of Mary, the wife of Clopas, the cousin of the Blessed Virgin. Very good. Mike, thanks so much uh, for your call today here on EWTN's Call to Communion. Let's go now to—well, we're not quite ready for uh, Patrick. We'll get to him in a moment. Here's a question, though. This is from uh, Greens, who says, Why is gender-affirming and gender-transitioning getting so far without being stopped by the Church? What is the Church doing about all this? Right. So, uh, several years ago—I'm thinking it was probably back around 20. 17, 2018, but I could be wrong on that. The Congregation for Catholic Education published a document called Male and Female, He Created Them, Mm -hmm. which is a magisterial document on the nature of human sexuality, gender, and and human uh, Christian anthropology more broadly, in which it takes a pretty hard line against gender ideology. Um, And you know, when it comes to the canon law of the church, there are places in the law of the church where the sex of a of a of a Catholic is important for determining their ecclesiastical status. Mm-hmm. You know, like whether they can enter holy orders, for example, or whether they could enter a women's religious community, or whether they could validly marry. These kinds of things. Sex plays a role, in the critical role, in determining one's uh, eligibility for certain offices and positions and vocations. And, and those, those principles are inviolable and haven't changed and, and presume the reality and the priority of biological sex. And they don't, they, don't, uh, they don't grant the presumptions of gender ideology. So the Church in her own internal functioning is going on the way she has for 2,000 years, which is not as an adherent to radical gender ideology, and in its public pronouncements is made his position clear that I mean, this is an erroneous doctrine that's being taught. Uh, now, in terms of the way, you know, the church engages with popular culture and the kind of public interventions 
um, you know, that's really up to the prudential judgment of the pope and the bishops about how they want to proceed in their own particular domain, right? And so, you know, I, I couldn't tell you, say, you know, why hasn't the pope published an encyclical, for example, on human anthropology and, and sexuality? I don't know why he hasn't published that. I have no idea. Um, you know, some bishops have, some bishops haven't. I mean, again, that's their that's their pastoral yeah, judgment yeah. for their situation. Mm -hmm. Appreciate that. Call to communion here on EWTN. We'll get back to the phones in just a second here. Let me tell you about something wonderful now available from EWTN's religious catalog. It is the Seven Swords gold-framed icon. We were talking earlier about icons. This beautiful foil icon depicts the sorrowful Virgin Mary with her hands raised in an accepting and prayerful position. Seven swords pierce her heart, which represent her seven sorrows. Prophecy of Simeon, flight into Egypt, loss of the child Jesus in the temple. Mary meets Jesus on the way to Calvary. Jesus dies on the cross. He's taken down from the cross, and Jesus laid in the tomb. This icon, imported from Russia, comes in a gold frame under protective glass. It has a grommet on the back for hanging. It's available right now at EWTNRC.com. Buy Catholic, shop Catholic, EWTNRC.com. In your search engine, you'll want to type in a Seven Swords gold-framed icon. Back to the phones now for Patrick in Morristown, Indiana, listening on the great Catholic Radio Indy. Hey, Patrick, what's on your mind today, sir? Well, I just want to say thanks for what you guys do for the Catholic faith and everything. And uh, I am a Catholic, and I've been learning a lot from you guys. Thank you. Uh, real quick, before I go into work here, I'm second-time caller. I called back a couple weeks ago. But uh, the way I explained to your call screener there, bear with me on this. I get kind of emotional because today is what we remember for the terrorist attack. And my question is, what is the Church's teaching on all those souls that were lost in the airplanes, that had no way of understanding what was going on? Were they even Christian? Did they make a opportunity to make an accusation that they were Catholic? And uh, the ones that jumped to their death? Because doesn't our faith teach us about suicide? How does the church distinguish between the two of that? And if you remember, we had to go and fight two wars that was watched longer than uh, Vietnam and all that. So I'd just like to have all of our listeners keep all the families and everybody involved in that and pray for world peace. That was my question there. So I'll hang up and listen. And thanks again for what you guys do, and God bless to you. Yeah, thank you, thank thank you, you. so much. I really appreciate the question. So in terms of, well, first of all, we all uh, recognize the horror of terrorism and what happened on September 11, 2001, and how our hearts go out to the families and the victims, and uh, it's terrible. In terms of what, um, what should we think about the souls that died on the plane, perhaps without the opportunity of contrition or, or a sacramental confession, their situation, while tragic, is not different from the condition of, of anyone who doesn't know the hour of their death, and maybe death takes by surprise, and that is probably most of us, right? So uh, it's important to prepare for a happy death, to remain in the state of grace, to remain united to Christ and the life of the virtues so that you're ready whenever that happens, right? Whether that happens in an airplane or an mm -hmm. automobile or a heart attack or what have you, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, in terms of the uh, those that leapt from the Twin Towers to avoid death in the conflagration, you know, the Church does teach that suicide is not permissible. Um, I, 
and I, I haven't read, you know, any in-depth treatises on this particular topic, I personally find it very difficult to construe those acts without qualification as suicide, right? Um, I mean, uh, and to say that they were acting under duress would be a gross understatement, yeah. right? So I think with the we do what we do with everyone who has passed in an untimely way. That is, we commend them to the mercy of God, and we pray for the best, right? Yeah. Um, and then, um, was there another question? Was that it? I think that was basically it. Okay. Uh, but uh, certainly, we, we should keep all those all, all those victims in, in our prayers. Uh, we just got a uh, word here from Christina, who is listening to us in Sydney, Australia. Christina says, "My friends who are newlyweds have just become Franciscans. Could you please explain to me what this means? They also had to choose names, like a child would for confirmation." Um, yeah. Thanks. Appreciate the question. So, uh, back up. Okay. I got to give some background to answer the question. Okay. Uh, in the gospel, when the rich young ruler approached Christ and he said, uh, "What must I do to be saved?" Christ said, "Well, keep the commandments." And he said, "Well, I've done that already." And Jesus said, "Okay. Well, if you want to be perfect, sell what you have, give to the poor, come and follow me." Mm-hmm. And then he had second thoughts and went back home. Um, when the Gerasene demoniac said to Christ, "Hey, I'd like to leave everything and follow you." Jesus said, no, you need to go back to your family and tell them what God's done for you. And the church has always understood that there are some people that Christ calls to counsels of perfection, which are understood to be poverty, chastity, and obedience. Mm -hmm. And there are others that are called to live uh, uh, in the lay state, uh, maybe in family life, which requires the acquisition of property. You can't take care of your kids if you don't have property. Right. And so there have been different orders in the church, different states of life. One of them, what we call the religious life. Now, that sounds weird to people who aren't Catholic because they think that believing the Catholic faith is religious. But we we mean those who have bound themselves by a rule. That's what religious life means. Okay. And different religious orders, groups of Catholics, have bound themselves to particular forms of life, all of them to poverty, chastity, and obedience— but different states of life within those restrictions that enable them to pursue some particular ministry in the church. So, for example, uh, if you've ever seen, uh, you know, nuns that teach Catholic schools, for example, they live lives of poverty, chastity, and obedience so that they can give themselves to the work of Catholic education, right? Um, There are priests who bind themselves to a rule so that they can be more effective missionaries and preachers of the gospel. Um, there are some monks, for example, that bind themselves to a rule with stability so they can spend their lives in a particular monastery and seek God more devoutly in prayer. In the uh, late 12th century, there was a man named Francis who lived in the Italian city of Assisi who bound himself and eventually some companions to a rule to live in total poverty and to imitate Christ as closely as he possibly could. So as Christ had no place to lay his head, but went out preaching the good news. So Francis sought to do likewise. Um, uh, he wore a brown habit. Uh, habit is the, the, the uniform, as it were, of, of Catholic religious. Uh, you often see statues of St. Francis in people's front yards uh, because he was fond of the animals and yes. allegedly preached to the birds. You know, So you'll see statues of St. Francis uh, you know, next to the bird fountain in people's front yards. And uh, people who have followed the path of St. Francis are called Franciscans. Now, most of those are people, men and women, who live in communities, religious communities, and they are not married. 
they're celibate, and they take vows of poverty, chastity, and obedience. Some of them are priests. Some of them are not. Uh, but they're, really their distinguished way of life is this sort of radical commitment to poverty and to radical commitment to the life and character of Jesus. Now, the Franciscans became very popular in the 13th century, and they attracted a lot of lay followers who said, hey, we want to we get in on this action, but we have, we have wives and families. Yeah. What, what can we do? And so there came into existence an institution called a third order, right? And these were people who took lesser vows. They weren't the vows of poverty, chastity, and obedience, but they would be vows to, say, live the virtues and to take up certain religious practices and prayer practices mm-hmm. and so forth, and moreover, to sort of be associated with the spirit and the ethos mm-hmm. of see. a particular religious community. And so married people that say, we're going to become Franciscans, more than likely what they have done is joined a Franciscan third order. Um, you know, uh, think of it as like a special Catholic club within the Catholic Church. Okay. Um, so that's, uh, but with this particular form of life. That's what that's all about, Christina. Thanks so much for watching us today in Sydney. Let's go now to Kathleen in Boise, Idaho, listening on the Great Salt and Light Radio. Hey there, uh, Christ- uh, Kathleen, what's on your mind today? Hi, thanks for taking my call. Here's my question. Who wrote the book of James? James Lesser, James Greater, or another James? Right. Thank you. I appreciate it. So, uh, according to sacred tradition, it was James, the brother of the Lord, who would eventually become the bishop of Jerusalem, right, who was the author of the of the epistle. But to, the truth of the matter is we don't really know. Okay. There you go, Kathleen. Thanks so much for your question from uh, Catholic, uh, from uh, Salt and Light Radio in Boise. Fantastic. Here's one now from Hank. This, he says, uh, it can be a stumbling block to Catholicism to try to trace the assumption and the Immaculate Conception dogmas to apostolic oral tradition. Do Catholics believe these dogmas of the deposit of faith were taught by the apostles? Yeah, thanks. So anything that is a dogma, the Church declares, has been revealed by God and handed on by sacred tradition. So at some level, the answer to the question is yes, this was taught by the apostles. But a dogma need not have been taught explicitly by the apostles. So, you know, to take another example, um, I think if you presented the apostles with the, the, the Nicono-Constantinopolitan definition of the divinity of Christ, right, what we recite as the, as the uh, Nicene Creed at, um, at Mass, uh, the, the specific uh, verbiage, the specific phraseology would be novel to them. They didn't know that creed because it hadn't been written mm-hmm. until the late 4th century. Mm-hmm. Um, if you said, well, this is what we mean by it, and this is how we understand its relationship to Christ and to the deposit of faith that came down to us in Scripture, they would say, oh, yeah, okay, that follows. That makes sense. I see where you're going with this. Right? There would be continuity there because of their basic conviction that Christ was truly God and God was truly one. Right? And they, they hadn't had to worry about working out scientifically um, how that shakes out dogmatically, right? That, but it was implicit in their teaching and later developed by the Church. And the same thing would be true of the Blessed Virgin Mary. So presumably, um, the apostles who were with her at the Dormition, um, you know, went back and there she wasn't there. You know, she's gone. The body's gone, right? Yeah, and they yeah. would have reported, and this is, you know, uh, St. Juvenal reports at the, at the Council of uh, Chalcedon, for example, um, that yeah, she didn't leave any relics behind because the apostles testified that she was assumed. Now, was it formulated dogmatically then the way it is now? No, that's not. I mean, there and the, the the various liturgical embellishments and 
so forth that grew up around it. Yeah, all, all that's a development. But the core reality of her having been taken up to heaven is, yeah, handed on by sacred tradition. All right, very good. Thanks so much uh, for your question. We have time for one more here. Here is Julia, a first-time caller from Kansas, watching on EWTN television. Julia, what's on your mind today? Yes, I was wondering if a person gets baptized Catholic right before they die, do they go straight to heaven? Um, yeah, thank you. Pr- provided they were sincere in their baptism, right? Yes. Uh, provided they, they had faith, right, and the desire to receive the baptism of the Church by disposition, yeah, then they would go straight to heaven. Julia, thank you so much. Uh, we have time for a, a quick question here from Larry, then. How does Church discipline, or binding and loosing, how does all that relate to the Eucharist? Right, in several ways. So, first of all, the binding and loosing that we read about in Matthew 18 Mm -hmm. uh, has reference specifically to church discipline, to admitting or excluding people from the communion of the church. So the authority to govern the life of the church, its liturgical practice, and to exclude the unworthy is intrinsic to binding and loosing. Now, doctrinally, the church can also bind and loose, as it were, with respect to teaching. It can teach authoritatively the Catholic faith and exclude those things that are contrary to the Catholic faith, and that would also include the doctrine of the Eucharist. So both of these things uh, pertain uh, to the binding and loosing of the church and with right. respect to the Eucharist. Larry, thank you so much uh, for your email. Glad we could get all those in. I heard from an awful lot of folks today. It's been a very solid, I would say, call to communion with Dr. David Anders. Thank you, sir. Thanks, Tom. We do this program Monday through Friday on EWTN Radio. Check it out live at 2 p.m. Eastern with an encore at 11 p.m. Eastern, 8 p.m. on the West Coast. You can also check out the podcast anytime you wish. Perhaps there was something we talked about on today's program. You'd really like to hear that again. You can do it by going to EWTN.com radio, EWTN.com radio. Click on the word podcasts, and then uh, we've got all of our podcasts alphabetically. Go down to Call to Communion, and you are good to go. On behalf of our fantastic team here, I'm Tom Price, along with Dr. David Anders. Hey, thanks for joining us. We'll see you next time here on EWTN's Call to Communion. Have a wonderful day. We'll see you next time. God bless. God bless.